Hi, I'm Gertrude Keesley, and this is Kingdom Consciousness. Jesus said, and this gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in all the world for a witness unto all nations, and then shall the end come, Matthews 24, 14. Before Jesus returns to set up his kingdom in its final form, the gospel of the kingdom must be extended throughout the nations of the world. In order to preach the gospel of the kingdom, we as kingdom citizens must understand the kingdom of God. Before we can become custodian to the keys of the kingdom, we must first experience kingdom living. In the past, much emphasis has been placed on the life and ministry of the king of the kingdom jesus christ and rightly so but not enough emphasis has been given to the gospel of the kingdom jesus told the religious leaders of his time ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men for ye neither go in yourselves neither suffer them that are entering to go in matthew 23 13. It was this gospel of the kingdom that was the central purpose of Christ's life. He began his earthly ministry by declaring the arrival of the kingdom. That's, you can find that in Matthew 4.17. He ended his earthly ministry by speaking of things pertaining to the kingdom, Acts 1 and 3. In between the beginning and ending of his earthly ministry, the emphasis was on the kingdom. Luke 4.43 says, And he said unto them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for therefore I am sent. The kingdom of God was the greatest concern of Jesus. His teachings and parables focused on the kingdom. His miracles were a demonstration of the kingdom of God in action. The phrases kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven are used over a hundred times in the books of Matthews, Mark, Luke, and John. We will explore the distinctions between these two. We are told to seek first the kingdom, to pray for it and to preach it. We are told how to enter the kingdom and taught that residency in it requires a new lifestyle. God is equipping his citizens to become kingdom minded so that we can understand the business of the kingdom. We are sons and daughters of the king. Everything about us is royalty, but we must first adopt the mind of Christ in order to understand what that actually means. We cannot have a poverty mindset and expect to grasp the reality of how much God desires for us to prosper. But there is a greater purpose than just understanding kingdom principles. Citizens must go beyond mere knowledge of the kingdom 
to actually experience it and make it the central purpose of our living. So I invite you to come and go with me as we explore this most exciting, interesting, and eye-opening subject. Hi, today I'm going to be speaking to you from the topic of being conscious of what we choose to worship, of what we choose to worship. I was reading an article the other day and the novelist was talking about the importance of being conscious of what we choose to worship. He says that what we worship can consume us almost entirely. Worse still, he said, we may not even be aware of being consumed by the object of our worship. Therefore, it's important that we as believers and as human beings are mindful of what we choose to worship. He makes an interesting juxtaposition of the choices that are available to us. She says, on the one hand, we have a choice to worship God, to pursue some kind of spirituality or to adhere to a set of principles. And on the other hand, we have the choice to worship money, beauty, power, intellect, etc. However, as the author reminds us, the, the grim reality of this position is that worshiping anything mentioned in the latter list that I named can pretty much eat us alive. They become the monsters in our lives. And unless there is something that makes us conscious of the implications of our choices, then we are in danger of being eaten alive by these monsters and this is true for individuals as well as humans collectively. Philosophers and writers and teachers and interpreters of religious texts and visions often help us in the process of becoming conscious of what we choose to worship. They warn us about the implications of their choice, not just for our, ourselves, but for the human communities around us. In the Hebrew scriptures, Daniel was an interpreter of mysterious nightmares and visions. In the scriptures, he can foresee things that can pretty much eat kings and their kingdoms. But his visions are not always nightmarish. There are some visions that promise healing and restoration. Another author reminds us of the importance of meditating on these texts in our own time so that we can learn to discern between powers that bring destruction to our world and the power that restores God's vision for human communities. The capacity to reflect on the world around us, that's a special gift 
that we as humans have. And as one of the species that inhabit this planet Earth, and as a species capable of consciousness, from old times, human beings know the importance of this gift. This consciousness as to who we are also helps us to understand that we cannot live by ourselves nor for ourselves. Now, for those of us who identify ourselves with specific religious traditions, it's the mystery of faith and our reliance on the beyond the human power that dictate our ethics toward the other. Ethical traditions and religious texts orient us, people of faith, to take our eyes away from things that pretty much eat us alive and turn to the divine precisely because we are caught in a relational web and therefore cannot simply exist by ourselves. In some of the oldest religious traditions, scriptures, doctrines, rituals, and practices, they act as directives for an ethical learning toward the other. For the faithful, these directives are mediated through the divine presence. The great emperors of the ancient world had magicians. They had sorcerers and um, enchanters, and they had also had wise elders and prophetic teachers to help them as they weighed in on pressing matters, especially when they couldn't make sense of nightmares or, for example, the writing on the wall. They also sought the help of gifted individuals like Daniel, who were 10 times better than all the magicians and sorcerers in deciphering the signs of their time. Now, Daniel, Daniel, through his meditation on nightmares and visions, made his emperors become conscious of the difference between the values of the beastly empires and those of the kingdom of God. So we're invited to become discerning readers of the scriptures as well as the world around us. It invites us to recognize and rely on the values of the kingdom of God, even when for many human com communities, everyday realities have come to resemble nightmares. We must be conscious of what we choose to worship. If all human attempts to understand the divine are closely tied to our moral posture toward the others, then it is, it's a travesty of religion, of any religion, especially when human beings from one religious group try to defend their religion by denying or destroying those who identify themselves with another group. The desire to exert power over others is a clear indication of a sense of insecurity. Insecure faith can eat us alive, both as individuals and human collectives. Insecure faith 
as history has shown us repeatedly and continues to show us, can only unleash a cycle of violence and coercion on other individuals and other communities. It leads to a distorted imagination of power over others. It's only when we return to a human-oriented vision of the kingdom of God and when we understand that the divine kingdom is intended toward all, that we are consciously distanced ourselves. We can constant, we can consciously distance ourselves from that other distorted visions of humans acting like gods on earth. The kingdom of God is an expansive enough concept that can include differences of all types. It's not about sameness. It's not about making others to be like us. It's also not about a rat race for gaining the upper hand in terms of power, money, beauty, and that sort of thing. So if it's not about all these things, wouldn't an all-encompassing an all-encompassing, different, incorporating kingdom of God lead to anarchy and an infighting? That's not what we want. One writer says, God's reign offers humans something common that brings them together, namely the promise that they, all, they are all equal human beings before God regardless of their race, ethnicity, gender, sexuality, socioeconomic status. At the same time, he says, the kingdom of God does not attempt to make its members identical with each other. The members of the kingdom of God are called to embrace and celebrate cultural, linguistic, and racial differences creating a beautiful picture of a community that seeks to worship God and to serve other human beings who are both within and outside of their faith community. That's powerful. That's powerful. Now, there is an invitation here to the devout reader of the scripture to consciously take on their role as interpreters of a divine vision for human society. It's an invitation that persuades people not to kill and destroy, but to build and rehabilitate, not merely buildings, but community so that they can live together, not necessarily always harmoniously, and perhaps not always without conflict, but definitely in such a way as not to annihilate creation, a creation that is inclusive of both human and other entities. So does it mean that for those who seek the kingdom of God, every proclamation and every action needs to be supported by active contemplation and quiet reflection, think about it. 
In Daniel's vision in chapter 7, it persuasively convinced us that to opt for the kingdom of God amounts to allowing ourselves to be persuaded by the dignity of all human beings. It amounts to consciously distancing ourselves from powers that devour, that break into pieces, and stamp what is left with their feet. It lets us know that it's our duty to become conscious of what we choose to worship. It's our choice. So let's make it carefully. God bless you. See you next week. Thank you.